Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, what do you have against preversions or preverts? Preverts. <laughs> what do I have against them? <laughs> just so many things. Yeah, right. Probably right, the right, list right. is just t- too long. But we know that they're all in RAF uniform, right? Of course, yes. They're the preverts they who were always trying to. Previously verted. <laughs> yes. Although I'd have to say. We didn't even get his name, but the guy in the movie who's against perversions, he must have been against the book because right, the book Red Alert by Peter George is a preversion <laughs> of the movie, the movie <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. Man, we're going really meta here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode. Today we are doing the 1964 Stanley Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned How to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, although I usually just call it Dr. Strangelove because it seems cumbersome. Yeah, like it's just a lot of words to put out there. You know what it reminds me of? A movie title, yeah. Those bands from the mid to late 2000s who had like 20 words in their song titles. Give me an example. Do you remember um, a band called Mayday Parade? Yes, I do. Yes, uh, they had one of my favorite songs for them. Okay, let's see if I can remember it exactly was... um, I'd hate to be you when you find out what this song is about. Ah, yes. That's the title of the song. True, Or uh, what was another one? It's like... I guess like there's um, Straylight Run and they have a song called A Slow Descent into Alcoholism. That seems like a long name. Oh, I think that's actually New Pornographers. Maybe it's a cover by Oh, maybe. Straylight Run. Oh, they where do. I first heard it. Oh, I would love to it's hear a very that good cover. cover. Yeah, 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 because I know that that's originally New Pornographers. So that makes sense, but mm-hmm. uh, the, I think the version that I heard was by yeah. Straylight Run. Or um even Fallout Boy had some of those really long True. like uh our lawyers made us change the name of this song. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was a good one. What is it? A little, a little less. Sixteen candles. A little bit more. Touch me. So yeah. <laughs> There's so, so this song is the original. I guess you could call it a preversion. I guess this movie kind of is a preversion of yeah. those those titles. And for those of you who haven't seen the film we're doing today, which is Doctor Strangelove, there is a character in the movie who keeps saying he doesn't like perversions or preverts. Yeah. So he's trying to say perversions or perverts, but for some reason, but he, he just says he can't it wrong. Do it, yeah, and for some reason, I just thought that was so funny. You, like, you, you did seem to enjoy it. <laughs> it's just like I love these. I love simple linguistic mix-ups that carry a lot of cognitive weight, right? In a comedy and maybe persona, maybe brings the uh, viewer's attention because of the mix-up. Yes, more, exactly. More viscerally, exactly. Yes. So, I guess just as a kind of preamble to this episode, you and I had discussed doing a Kubrick film. Yes. We hadn't done one yet. And obviously, there's so many famous ones and important ones. And I don't know. This one feels like... How did we decide on this one again? You didn't want to do 2001. Yeah. I, I, a shout out to Kendall, who will be mad at me about that. But I think <laughs> it's a terrible movie and I don't enjoy it. <laughs> terrible? Like, I don't enjoy it at all. Oh. So, not just boring. But well, very ter- boring. Well, yeah. I mean, I could agree that there is... 
there's a lot like, of pace. Some people could say that like there will be blood is boring, but I don't find it boring. Right. But you find two thousand one boring. And like and I don't think bad. it's ter- terribly insightful. Oh, okay. now and I know that like, wow. movie critics are gonna like lose their minds on me. But <laughs> everyone yeah. can hat David now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I feel that's fair. And t- to be to be fair, I've only seen it once, and it was like probably ten years ago. So I don't have like the most distinct memory. I have of. never been able to get through the whole thing. That's a good thing we didn't do it. Maybe yeah. that will be um, a punishment, or if you lose a bet. <laughs> there we go. Maybe there if Kendall becomes a, a, a guest, <laughs> a guest, <laughs> you get to. Uh, I, I will say, at least for 2001 Space Odyssey, Hal 9000 is a chilling villain. I really thought the villain in that movie was awesome. Yeah. In a very I mean, understated way. That's easy to be what people think about it. But, you know, the rest of it is kind of weird. So, yeah, so we decided that we so didn't not want that to do one. that one. We'll probably do Clockwork Orange in the future sometime. Yeah. I just thought it was a book I wanted to read as well as a movie I want to see. And also, like, part of my reticence of doing Clockwork Orange, and this is totally, like, unjustified, but it's a prejudice, I guess, is that so many podcasts I listen to have already done Clockwork Orange. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? right? So, it's like, in a very non-statistically relevant way, it feels like it wouldn't be unique right. for us to do it. <laughs> Whereas I haven't heard anyone do Dr. Strangelove. True, <laughs> so, true. So that was part of why I suggested it. And I just remember Dr. Strangelove, because I have seen, I did see it once before we watched it for this episode. It just, it, like, my memory of it was like, it was so funny. There's a lot of iconic scenes in it. For yeah, sure, a lot. And, and great humor that some of it has aged well, some of it is kind of not, but, you know, we can get into that. But I do remember just thinking, man, this is a, like, Kubrick isn't exactly known for comedy. No, but this right. is definitely a comedy. I would say this is definitely of all the movies I've seen, this is his funniest. It's a, it's satire. It's mm-hmm. really good satire. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't seen them all, but I have seen Eyes Wide Shut. I've seen Full Metal Jacket, which has some comedy too, actually, but in a even darker way, almost it feels than this, because even though this one, the casualty rates are way higher viscerally, it's less impactful than Full Metal Jacket is. I've seen Clockwork Orange. I've seen Two Thousand One. I've seen The Shining, and I've seen this one. So of those six, I guess, this one I think is the funniest. Yeah, I'd agree. So yeah, it was based on a movie. I didn't know this. It was based on a book by Peter George called Red Alert, which makes sense. Like, there's a, There'd definitely be a kind of l- literary mind that would be taking advantage of a lot of what was happening in the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, right? Yes. So, yes. Uh, and then this is where we were introduced to, at least culturally, I mean, maybe it was before this, but the doomsday idea, right? Yeah. The doomsday device, which I, I made a note along the way that I thought, um, I wonder how much uh, Alan Moore paid attention to this movie when he made Watchmen. That's a good point. Right? Because Watchmen yeah. has the doomsday motif in it a lot as well, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. You know, I like... A lot of these, these things play off one another, right? I mean, that's one of the great things about really getting into culture, I think, is you begin to see how people are riffing off one another. And all art seems to build off what came before. And and the truly great artists, let's take um, Tarantino, for example, always pays homage to the greats before. Mm -hmm. And so just before we um, get into a plot rundown, I just have to marvel at Peter Sellers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Who plays three main roles in this movie he's um he plays i think it's sergeant mandrake or lieutenant mandrake the raf officer throughout the beginning and and most of the film and he plays the president 
uh, Merton Muffley or something like that. I can't remember. I could have looked up this name, but as as the joke I made to David before the episode, really true fiction, a little diligence. <laughs> so, and then he also thoughtful plays, mediocrity, thoughtful mediocrity, like, yeah. right? Yeah. And then he also so he plays those two main characters. And he also plays Doctor Strange Love himself. Yeah. Which all three of them have different accents, which is really impressive. Like I, Peter Sellers to me is one of the. I mean, it's hard to call him underrated because he was super famous in his time, but he's maybe just, he's underrated now. Yeah, totally. Or like kind just, of unknown. Oh, the the Pink Panther movies are treasures in the history of comedy. They're so funny. The way he can be Inspector Clouseau, who is a hundred percent self assured and a hundred percent inept, all in the same <laughs> one fell swoop. Yeah, is so <laughs> funny, and. I would also say a movie we should probably do sometime time on this podcast. I think it, I believe it's called Being There, which is from 1979, and it's like one of his last movies. And he plays this guy named I can't remember if it's pronounced Chance or Chancy Gardner, and um, he's basically a clueless person who kind of wanders into the White House, and then because he he the, the he becomes like the number one advisor for the president. Because whenever someone asks him something, he gives like a vague answer. And it's because he doesn't know anything, but everyone around him interprets it as him being like super wise and super insightful and like (laughs) just laying the breadcrumbs for them to figure it out. And then they're like marveling at his genius. (laughs) So he just kind of, he keeps making his way up the ladder because he keeps giving all these vague non-answers to everyone's questions and they just interpret it as a really deep thing. And it reminds me so much of season three of Arrested Development where Michael is falling for Rita, Charlize Theron's character. And she's mentally challenged. And so when she says things like, well, and he thinks she's a teacher, so she's, he says, oh, man, you must teach those kids a lot, or you must, get, you must teach those people a lot at your school, and he's, she's like, I like to think they teach me, <laughs> you know, because she's actually this student, and he just yes. interprets her as being way smarter than him, and that's why that joke is so funny. So wise, yes, yeah. yes. So anyway, I, I just I had to um, fanboy a bit on Peter Sellers, because I think he's so impressive. And also, just before we get in, Dave and I are so appreciative of all of you listeners out there. And um, if you get any value out of Really True Fiction, we would really appreciate a rating or a review. Apparently, reviews are a really good way to help the show grow. So if you wouldn't mind giving a review of the show, we would really appreciate that on iTunes. I don't know if you can do reviews on Spotify. I haven't seen any. Interesting. But, yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, I think you subscribe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And subscriptions are great. Yes. Which, yeah. uh, if you could subscribe to the show, that'd be great because you'll get notifications every time a new episode comes out. We try to release on Sundays, but it's not always easy to get that done with our <laughs> no. schedules, but we do our best. So, yeah, we're available on all major podcasting apps. And and we're also growing in India. Yes, <laughs> yes. We Shout out to our, our fans in India. Yeah, Thank I, you. I think we're at about 100 downloads as of this recording in India, which is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just, just thinking how that international the world is now, and our voices are heard across the slipstreams of... Um, space anyway and, and time yeah it's <laughs> yeah. so weird you know it's a very surreal experience and so we really appreciate that um if you want to get in touch with us about anything you can give us an email at really gmail.com after our infinite jest episode we actually got a couple of emails and that's been really nice that one i think has been appreciated so thanks to everyone who downloaded that episode especially that one felt good to do yeah that was a gr- I, I really enjoyed doing that one mm-hmm 
and we're on Facebook. You can find us, and perhaps in the future we'll work on Twitter slash Instagram. Although that's certainly not my expertise. Yeah, well, and maybe not your inclination. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it's a lot of work, but we'll get there. We're... Well, I have to. Okay, I have to tell this like little self-deprecating joke. I actually tried to make a Twitter account for Really True Fiction, and uh, when Twitter asked what the birthday was, I being you know the kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, first-time Twitter user I am, I put in Really True Fiction's birthday, <laughs> which is September seventh, twenty nineteen. So Twitter's like, well, actually, you're banned because we don't allow one-year-olds on the platform. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no. That was stupid. Yeah. And now I don't know how to get it back. <laughs> so actually, if any of you out there know how to recover Send us an email. a Twitter account because of mislabeling the birthday as a one-year-old, I'd appreciate that. But again, we just really appreciate everybody who listens. It's a ton of fun to do this, watch the movies, read the books. So thank you. So, David, do you want to give us a little bit of a plot rundown of Dr. Strangelove? Okay, so, I mean, the plot is actually quite simple. <laughs> Very simple. Um, which is essentially that there's a general that's gone rogue because he has these... Named Jack Ripper, <laughs> named which is hilarious. Jack, yes, named Jack Ripper. Through a series of uh, events that he's planned out, uh, there is a, a war games exercise going on with the entire strategic nuclear bombing reserve of the... American army and then they're told to go for it because the code that's used is that Washington DC has already been hit with a nuke and therefore the command has has gone down the chain to a local general i.e. Jack Ripper and that makes it so that nobody can communicate with any of the aircraft except through a code that only Jack Ripper knows and the proceed or the, the events that that um, then escalate is basically the president being full of consternation that this has occurred and that there's no way to stop this. Um, some very humorous conversations between the president and the premier of Russia, or I, I guess the president of Russia equivalent. And then at the end, through a, again a series of events, the whole world being destroyed by nuclear war. Yes. By accident. Right. Yes. <laughs> Not intentionally by any of the leadership or <laughs> politicians involved. So uh, I think, yeah, the, the plot's quite simple. Uh, there's, you know, there's an attempt to take out the general and, and find the code. And so there's, you know, a little bit of American on American warfare. There's some jokes about the Russian lifestyle. But, but most of this is a, a kind of a comedy of errors that lead that leads to complete and utter disaster, but you know, told in almost a Monty Python esque keep on the sunny side of life sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, there is a there is a. I mean, and I I think it's probably amplified by the fact that Peter Sellers is kind of the main actor in the movie. There is a very kind of British feel to this yes, movie, yeah. even though it's about it, it feels like a movie which is a british Im- impression of america yeah <laughs> which yeah. is pretty funny like because the british being so wry it's a very like, wry movie yeah you just like here's the thing this is the line i remembered most from the movie i can't imagine american comedy writers certainly in the 60s coming up with the line Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that just yes. doesn't feel like an American no, joke. No. It feels like a British joke, right? It does, yeah. And so that's why I feel so 
entertained by so much of this movie is that it does have that Monty Python like line where Mandrake says to Jack Dripper, well, we we do want to like prevent nuclear war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? like, like Mandrake having to spell it out. Or, or, that that, or and there's so many little things in this movie like that sign, you know, our profession is peace. Right, yes. Or or on the on the bottom of the screen when one of the guys is talk or sorry on his um one of the general's binders literally is labeled mega death. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot if that's of, where the band got their name from. The, the, that's one of the things I like about this movie is it's there's a lot of um you know subtle commentary purely visual but sorry not even subtle in your face commentary but but not you know like signage but not stated there's a lot of signage yes. yeah <laughs> uh, yeah exactly and then basically there's like three settings of the movie there's like the jack the rippers uh, jack the ripper <laughs> of course i couldn't help it right no okay now i have to tell this joke what do um john the baptist and winnie the pooh have in common oh no what their middle name Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was for all of you. Because also David loved it. <laughs> uh, there's, like, the setting of his office, but also that base, which I believe is called the Burbleson mili- Air Base or Military Base. The war room where the president and the other character, uh, Buck Turgeson, the other general, who's important in the yes. movie, is located, as well as Dr. Strangelove, and where the Russian ambassador comes to. And then also the uh, the bomber, the actual airplane that drops the nuke. That ends the world. That ends the world. We get all of the characters on there, and I and I always enjoy the fact that James Earl Jones, Darth Vader himself, is in this is in movie. This bomber, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple scenes where he's talking where you, if you just like squint your ears hard enough, you can hear Vader. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, really it's cool. True, it's true. A very uh, young version of it. Not as easy to hear Mufasa, but no, <laughs> but, but Vader, <laughs> yes. So anyway, the first character I have notes on is Jack Ripper. In general, this movie is like a little bit cheesy. And a little bit quirky, but I think it actually subtly has in some very deep psychologies. There's no surface level depth, but there's a lot of exactly. underlying. It's a, it's a totally a satire. Right? Well, well, it would definitely be billed production wise as a comedy. Yes, right. And I don't know. In 1964, maybe you didn't need comedies to be superficially meaningful. No, <laughs> no, you don't now either. Right, right. right. Like I, I don't know if you do now either. There's a lot of dumbass comedies out there. But I couldn't help but think, like, even though the, the conversation is very almost childlike between a lot of the characters, and definitely Ripper himself even, as like a very stereotypical, didactic general who actually believes he knows the world, it unravels that he's... <laughs> Like crazy, like, yeah. <laughs> right? Like he's a, he's a conspiracy theorist. Oh, a massive conspiracy theorist. And so I thought we could talk about him first, okay? Because he's like he sets he's the plot ignition anyway. Well, he's the remix to ignition, right? <laughs> so like we we kind of brought it up already, but one of the kind of mind blowing things about nuclear war, I guess, is how much of it it can just be invested in like a couple people, and then even like the mistakes they make can be catastrophic. Yeah. Right? And and I believe there was even a story from like 1983 where a Soviet submarine captain basically saved the world from this kind of scenario because their radar picked up a couple of what they perceived to be American nukes. The interblit or intercontinental ballistic it, missiles. Exactly. Yeah. And he just basically decided that their radar wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or that he he his order was, oh, if we see fire. this on the radar, we fire. Yeah. And he chose not to because he didn't think it was real. 
and it wasn't, and world saved. Yeah, and apparently that guy's still alive or whatever, mm. and, and just living like in poverty in Russia. Like he sure. got no accolades mm. for saving the world, right? It's it's. I often wonder how many people are there out there who have done things like that that we don't know about. Mm. Yeah, that we all owe our continued existence to. Oh, probably lots. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about this guy? And oh, his man, like, like I actually, decision making. I found him pretty annoying. Like, yeah, well, for sure. I mean, especially when he was talking about women and his essence, and like they're stealing his essence. It was just weird. Like, it is weird, but like, what, what do you think the satire there is? I actually didn't know what the satire oh, okay. there was. Maybe I maybe I didn't think about it enough. Um, his whole fluoride thing, like everything he was saying, how the communists are infiltrating, and like we're at war, and and he he feels like you know he believes. In, it's interesting, like, a lot of it's, you know, building up the psychology of the kind of person who would do something like this. You know, he believes in an afterlife, so his death... He's kind of meaningless. He's kind of meaningless. Yeah. But he, and he also is, like, completely ideological, and he, and he believes that it's worth killing, I guess, essentially hundreds of millions of people for this ideological war that he's in. Like, better, better you know, better dead than red. Exactly. Kind of well, and I mean, part of the plan is... And this is something articulated more through the other general, Buck Turgeson, or Turgidson, or whatever his name was. It's a, it's a very rigid, erect name. Right, a very erect name. I like it. <laughs> he says, well, okay, if we do this kind of preemptive strike on our primary targets, and we know it's happening and the Russians don't, we will compel ourselves into having no choice but to do an all-out nuclear attack on them. Because and, other, just, and completely and just, destroy Russia. Exactly. Yeah. So... I guess the plan from this Jack Ripper general guy is that because I'm instigating this kind of minor spark of the nuclear war, I'm doing just enough to make Russia retaliate if they can. So So we need to make sure they can. Exactly. So we have to actually, like I'm bringing the first 2%, but that's enough to get Russia going. And now President Muffley or Muffler or whatever his name is, you have to bring the other 98%. Otherwise we're fucked. Well, and the interesting thing about this is that this is a lack of imagination. Exactly. Right, and you see this with military-minded people all the time. They get they get trapped in in their own presuppositions, mm. and they don't think they underestimate their enemies. And it, like Sun Tzu, that's his biggest. They never underestimate your opponent, right? Which is fundamentally what Jack Ripper's done here. He's actually believed that he like because he he hates Russians so much. He, well, not Russians so much as communists, but he but he seems to just for him there doesn't seem to be a difference. Yeah, he de- he despises them, and in his despising of his enemy, he fails to imagine a scenario in which. They would create a system that would protect them from that kind of situation. Exactly. Right? Which yeah. they already have, obviously. He's got that line near the beginning where it's like, the war war is too important to be left to the politicians. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? And, I, and I think people like this are so interesting because conspiracy theorists particularly can be very imaginative, but it's actually a lack of imagination that brings them generally to these well, things. Well, it's, it's imaginative, but the ending is already decided. Well, the ending's decided, but the imaginative nature of it is actually just a... It's, it's seeking an explanation for the world, that there may not be an explanation, mm. right? So, so I find often with conspiracy theorists, they're so dedicated to the idea of that they understand what's going on that they that they fail to you know to think about what what could be right, right. like and yeah. and maybe 
maybe it's not that the the communists are evil although i i mean i would argue communism is fairly evil personally but maybe it's not that maybe it's that they're also feeling threatened <laughs> which is really what what jack river see he's right. he he feels like his way of life his the the values that he holds dear are under attack mm. and that that the only way to stop that attack is you know ungodly amounts of force mm-hmm. it's been a while that we haven't talked about communism we did we talked a lot kind of in our earlier episodes about communism my my thinking about communism has kind of evolved to the point where i think it's not so much evil as it's just a mistake right like it's the ideology or marxism is itself a often initiated through an ethical or compassionate care of others but it so fundamentally misapprehends human nature. So it's not that it doesn't work. It's that it can't work. Right. Which is why it's a mistake. And so it becomes evil when human beings being the creatures that we are, we are fundamentally, our natures are fundamentally opposed to the tenets of Marxism. So the only way to make the tenets of Marxism work is to try and change, change human, human nature. Yes, hu- right. well, not, and since human nature can't be changed, you have to basically control other human beings yeah to make them do what you you want control their behavior (laughs) exactly that's attested to through hundreds and thousands and millions of examples throughout history that uh, i'm neither an expert enough nor uh, have the inclination to get into here so i see it as a i would differentiate but if you want to read about it gulag archipelago yeah, Gulag Archipelago. Archipelago, Yeah, sorry. that's a really sh- shitty hard word, hey? Yeah, it is. It is a hard word. <laughs> like, why did he have to pick that word for in the title of one of the most important books ever written? <laughs> right? Probably to make it unique. Who knows? I suppose right? so, yeah. yeah. But Gulag Archipelago, but even just like... Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, learning through work about the Khmer Rouge and all that kind of stuff. Like, So I, I just delineate, the philosopher me delineates between Marxism, which I think is a mistake, and communists, who I think often get to the point where they realize they can't get the tenets without, as they were, breaking the eggs. Never mind, human beings aren't eggs, mm-hmm. right? So that's a little digression. I think the evil comes into people who want power and use an ideology that can't work I like that. to have get their power, way, right? right? To get power, yeah. Yeah, they're convincing the, the people of the righteousness of their cause. And you know what? These people, people who take power in communistic or Marxist societies, they can easily start out not being evil yeah i and i i imagine that is often the case i think about i mean i self-identified as a communist in uh, university which is exactly when i didn't know anything about it (laughs) right of course right right? because the the underlying tenets seem so laudable right care about the poor equality equality help others uh, from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their need how beautiful does that sound it sounds great but again, like everything, devil's in the details. And details have a huge impact on the way things happen in day-to-day life. Yeah, details matter. So that's like kind of how my thinking on Marxism has evolved into now, where it just it's just it's not so much evil as just a mistake. Right. <laughs> like right. and we need we should not be pursuing mistakes when we know that they are that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> so anyway. But on Jack Ripper himself, my theory of the satire going on with this character you know, how I view this Rorschach test of a character is that he, it's, he represents a great example of what can happen if the wrong person gets in charge of something, right? Yeah. Wrong person gets in charge of something really important. If you think about the sociology of the army, it's just, it's straight up 
chain of command. So Jack Ripper, this general, he's a general, he's able to control through language the behavior of hundreds of people, right? That's kind of weird. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right. he doesn't actually kill most of the people. He doesn't actually... Drop like, the bomb. Ch- drop the bomb. He he instructs all of these people on the airbase, the Burbelson airbase, to... That everyone coming to stop them are actually communists in disguise. Yeah. And that they need to fight them and that their orders, their their orders are to fight anyone who comes to stop them because he knows that once the planes are in the air, people are going to try and come and stop him to get yeah. the code so that they can stop the planes from dropping bombs on Russia. And so sociologically, they have to, and socially, this army, all these soldiers have to do what he tells them. And at the beginning, he seems like a pretty rational person, right? Which is what you'd want. And as he has, as his conversation evolves with uh, this Mandrake, Mandrake, we realize this guy has lost his marbles. He's operating under the fluoride theory that the commies are in America, infiltrated, putting fluoride in the water, which is mushing the brains of Americans, which is making them more sympathetic to communism. Yeah, and it's uh, sapping him of his essence, right? As he says, like, don't don't get me wrong, Mandrake. I have lots of women, and I like women, but they're not getting my real essence or something like that. Yeah, right. And that might, I thought that that might be a commentary on aging and becoming less vital. Yeah, like being being less able to perform Mm -hmm. and him thinking that there was some external, because everything that's wrong in his life is externally sourced. Right. There's a huge victim mentality going on here, and then a, a reaction to that, which is, well, let's destroy that thing that I think is causing these personal problems for me. Because he seems to boil it down to his sex life isn't as good mm-hmm. as he wants. And it's interesting how Mandrake changes his tone and style of speaking to him as he's starting to learn that he's not all there. Right. <laughs> right? right. Like at he the beginning. agreeing with him. Yeah. At yeah. the beginning, Mandrake's like, yes, sir. No, sir. I don't think this is a good idea, sir. Yeah, like, yeah. it's just very, like... He assumes... At the beginning, Mandrake assumes that he's a rational actor. Yeah, it's the conversation of a rational actor to another rational actor. And as it's becoming clear that Ripper is not a rational actor, Mandrake has to basically talk to him like a child. Yeah. Like, oh, you're right. Remember, we played on the couch together. Yeah. I helped you shoot, and yes. now you should give me the code. You know, like, <laughs> this kind of... And Let's play a game. I'll yeah. guess the code, and you tell me whether I'm right or not. And this is a... I don't know exactly how to articulate this point other than something around the mere fact that Ripper is a general is not a good enough reason to rest on the laurels of listening to him. Yeah. Right? And yet, it's kind of how it has to be socially. How do we figure out how to put in and maintain and re retest, I guess, People who have massive authority yeah. and power. There's a great line from Thomas Paine where he says, the problem with monarchy is that wisdom isn't hereditary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, the problem with... The military industrial complex. Is that wisdom isn't always the guiding light in every decision-making process. And no. you can see this. There's One of the biggest motifs of this film is motivated reasoning. Yeah. Right? We see it so much with Buck and Ripper, and even a little bit with Strangelove, like, they want the end, that they are retroactively constructing the means to get there. Yeah. That's not in the public's interest. No, but it's in their interest. It's in their interest. So how do we feel about having people 
in power who have selfish selfish interests that aren't in the public's interests. Right. And then <laughs> and what do we do about it? Because that's kind of the conundrum Mandrake is in. Yeah. Right? His whole arc of the movie is figuring out how to <laughs> basically coax the codes out of Ripper. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Once he realizes this is not a rational actor. And even the, the guy who comes and finds him at the end, the perversions guy, he's worried about ripping off the Coca-Cola company because it's private property. I know. Yeah. Rather than giving enough which money. Is like, which is for sure a commentary on America. It's like we're more worried about ripping off private property than we are about saving the world. Well, yeah. The scene being Mandrake needs a little bit of extra change to call to the pentagon war room to get in touch with the president to tell him the code to call off the the airplanes that are going to drop the nukes on russia and he's like 55 cents short or something and they won't take a collect call so there's a very there's another monty python version of yeah. all of this going yeah. on there yeah. right they're like oh no he's like calls. oh well why don't you just shoot that that vending machine there and give me the change he's like that's private property it's like <laughs> yes but yeah but weighing I'm... of values here it's like well if this ends up being a hoax I'm going to report you to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> so, fine. Fair. Yeah, okay. So so this is Mandrake's, and this is, I think, the most British version of the critique of... Of American. America yeah, here. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think Ripper is capable of so much destruction. Like, there's, there's like, okay, well, how do we feel about only a couple people being in charge of our nukes, maybe, right? right? Or human error. And yet, all it takes is one crazy person in charge of the nukes. For yeah, a bad thing to yeah. happen, right? So I don't know what that was my take on Ripper. Being being not what he seemed and yet getting the power and, and the sociology around the military having to listen to Well someone. even remember the president says to, to General Buck, he's like, So you promised me that you'd done psychological evaluations on all of your people who have access to this. And he's like, Well, yes, but you know, you can't let one bad apple, you know, um dictate your view of a system. And it's like, um, in this particular case, yes, you can. Yeah, like, this is exactly when objective truth has to trump our like feelings about other people. Yeah. Right? Because nukes are a category. They're not a continuum. It's no. like before a nuke goes They're off. An on and, and off switch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no like middle ground. It's like, well, you know, there's before the nuke, there's during the nuke, and then there's the after the nuke. I mean, I guess there's literally that. Yes. But only literally, right? Like, there's yeah. no, like... But um, the, the, cause, the causal structure of a nuke is very, very stark. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is why... I mean, I don't mean to be dark or macabre about this, but there's a, there's only a before, you're, before you've fallen off the cliff and after you've fallen yeah. off the cliff. There's no, like, I wonder how I'm going to live... After I've fallen off the cliff while I'm deciding whether that was... Like, how will that make other... I don't know. There's just so much... I think people know what I'm driving at here. Like, there's conceptually... It doesn't matter your feelings about it. Yeah, exactly. Your feelings are completely irrelevant. And yet feelings are what got us here. Yeah, feelings are what got Ripper into his manipulation of the system to drop nukes on Russia. Yeah. Right? Purely feelings. His feelings about communism, his feelings about his own... I really do think there's something significant here about it's his mental problems and his problem with himself that he's ignoring. Mm, yeah. That has actually mm, caused that's a good this, point. right? Is that he doesn't like the way the world's going. He doesn't like how his sex life is. Like he doesn't like politicians having the, you know, being able to stop him from, you know, waging war essentially. And the result 
is that this singular person causes the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Through basically hallucinations and psychotic breakdowns. Yeah. Right? And yet he's sm- like, so he's smart enough to manipulate the system to figure out how he can have the final say, but he's motivated to end the world because of his own kind of well, also he does, But he doesn't know he's ending the world. That's the other problem. Oh, true. Right? Right. Dr. Strangelove does. He, yeah. Ripper thinks that he's actually just ending Russia. Yeah. And right. Strangelove knows. So he well, believes that he's making the, he's, he's doing the right thing. It's actually not Strangelove who knows it first. It's the Russian ambassador. Yes. Who tells them. But then Strangelove gives a little bit of exposition. But Strangelove was the one who put forward the postulation that such a thing could be made, mm. which then scared the Russians into escalating because they're like, we must win the doomsday armed race, right? Yeah, and I mean, I guess if there's any like practical lesson to be taken out of the uh, Ripper scenario is that you can never have enough fail-safes no. for a process like this because of just human error. I wonder, I, yeah, this is interesting to me. I wonder if this is something that was going through, it must have been going through Oppenheimer's mind when he said, you know, I've become... Death, destroyer of worlds. Destroyer of worlds, is that it's not just that, <laughs> it's not just that nuclear bombs can destroy the world obviously they can it's that they're, they're also being wielded by only a semi to only sometimes rational creature yeah <laughs> right yeah. it's not it's not like spock and the vulcans are in charge no. of the nukes right no. it's it's uh the kirks a bunch of, cra- <laughs> yeah, a bunch right? of crazy like, people yeah it's like that double danger that i think was probably part of the reason why oppenheimer is yeah i mean that, that is such an iconic expression from him right and it's clear in this film like it's weird because we're not out of the woods yet from a nuclear no. a frame of mind, but it just would have been so much more like in the culture in the 60s. Well, I think this the, came out after, like four months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Yeah. So. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, people were like being trained every day in school to hide under desks, which I mean, how what good is that going to do? But like, you got to give someone people to do a moment of panic, like, you know, putting on the oxygen mask in a plane. What like What's the reason for that? Well, actually to stop panic, right? Mm, yeah. I think we are out of the woods to some degree. I don't want to sound um, hubristic, but the ideological underpinnings of a desire to have nuclear war have been are, have been lessened. Mm. I think right the war that any war that we would face now would be a war of incentives, as opposed to a war of ideology. Right now, that mm. could change. Right, and and also like I don't. I, I don't sus- I suspect that a nuke will go off in our lifetime somewhere, but I don't think that that would escalate to. Yeah, and it's I guess it's just kind of too in our in our culture now who the enemy is has changed in the zeitgeist, right? So right now, I mean, not so much in Canada, but much more in the states, the enemy is just other Americans. Yeah, it's much more civil. Yeah, well, uncivil in yes. the, the colloquial sense, but civil in the political sense right it's uh in the polity and the polity sense. yeah yeah i mean and you're right it is incentive based if the incentive right now is for cops to not engage with criminal activity because of social repercussions through social media and the media in general and politicians who acquiesce to media pressure i think it's impossible that there won't be fighting in the streets between citizens yep which is 
what's that is it which which shakespeare plays it where uh once let go the dogs of war are not easily i feel like it's one of the richard ones yeah maybe i, I can't and i'm gonna fuck up the quote but it's something the the feel is like once released the dogs of war are not easily they can't be put back, back in their cage. Yeah, yeah 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 i mean it's a play on the uh pandora's box idea or the genie in the bottle idea but also just put in beautiful Shakespearean language with the dogs of war, right? Well, I think we need to look at this as an interesting, who benefits from Americans fighting Americans? It's not Americans. Yeah, but I think part of the problem of that is that, you know, here I am going to go whinge on the younger generation. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Although I have to say, I get so annoyed when people blame millennials right. <laughs> for the world when you know most millennials are in their 30s now right like yeah yeah we, we haven't had a lot of power we're not the ones who uh are instigating a lot of this i think this is a failure of the education in general of the last 15 years 15 to 20 years of a, of youth in america like <laughs> the fact that everyone knows about world war ii and so many people don't know about the Soviet Union? No, I know. Is mind-blowing. Or, Even just or, statistically, way more people died in the Soviet Union. Or or in China. Yeah, or in China. Or the fact that people are... I mean, like, slavery was a horrible, horrible thing, and we've talked about that on this podcast before. And, you know, that is something that America needs to really repent for and work on fixing mm-hmm. the systemic problems that were caused by. But, like... Let's not pretend this is a problem unique to America. No, no, no. And I mean, the part, the problem with the systemic, it's not a problem. Like, it's just what is it? If you think about the term systemic racism, that's that's a that's a good beginning heuristic to start to solve. Yeah, problems. I guess when I but say, you got to get yeah. into the detail. Well, when I say that, it's like the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, and exactly. Like everything that happened in the in the South to to basically push people right, down. Right, 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 right. I mean, what arguably Martin Luther King Jr. fought against and like I mean there was there's there's long and a a long and terrible history of racial problems in the states but Mm -hmm. like I would still rather be the next door neighbor to America than China oh yeah of course I'd still rather be a black person in America than a Muslim in China sure yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and but that's this is the perspective that maybe was never there in the general culture and public throughout time history ever but now there's like less and less excuse to not know about this stuff. Yeah, right. Because- and we don't <laughs> like like the 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 consternation and you know cries for justice that are coming out of the United States are so important and yet so exaggerated mm-hmm. when compared to not to human history mm-hmm. and also current global situations right like democracy's literally being crushed in hong kong right now mm-hmm. that should be talked about more yeah like it just it's um we're at a very <laughs> we're at a unique point in history where it feels like the country least impressed with and willing to uphold american values is the united states <laughs> <laughs> well right? yeah like the- like hong kong and freedom fighters in taiwan East- taiwan and eastern europe once you start learning about a lot of this stuff internationally the united states is held up as a beacon internationally for freedom because of the way that the constitution un uh, the the declaration of independence and the constitution un lived up to in the time and arguably probably still not totally lived up to now with the different groups of people but the ideal of that 
is the first and arguably still the greatest kind of like postulation of self-identified freedom that we're choosing for ourselves. Thank you very much, King George. Yes. Right? And that if you don't live in a country, if you and if you never grew up in a country that had severe political what would you call it like you just weren't allowed to do shit yeah (laughs) right you had there were there were there's no rule of law there's no due process there's no court cases there's no need to tell you why you're being arrested right like this is the kind of thing that you're constantly living in a state of fear of, of the state itself of the state itself yeah that's a good point like the exaggeration of the fascism of Trump is a good indication that most, a lot of people making those claims in America have no idea what it's like to live under a dictator. No, or even like a bad government. <laughs> exactly. Or, a, or an, like a, I mean, I'm not going to call Trump's administration overly competent. No. But it's not fascist. Well, and like maybe Trump and a few of his other people, like you could argue about their competence, but like there's a lot of very competent public servants in the United States. Exactly. And it's still a functioning system. Mm. Now, are there real problems? Uh, I would argue particularly fiscally in the United States. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Are there real problems racially? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But like but anything, like, these things I'd are rather way... be there than almost anywhere else. And, and the thing is to solve those problems, it's going to take way more sophistication and complicated, flexible thinking than defund the police or all cops are bastards. Yeah. This is what's so crazy, it seems to me, is that it seems for a lot, for, for a swath of people, and, and we're talking about a minority of people who are very outspoken on the internet, it almost feels like they truly believe that memes will solve this problem. No, no, they do. Like, they do believe that. Twitter and Instagram I and think memes they, are all that's needed. And it gives them, like, but this is the problem with social media. This is the, let's call it the disease of social media, is that it it's like a drug. It gives you affirmation. Right. Right. It gives you dopamine. Every time your phone buzzes and you see another like on your tweet about defunding the police mm-hmm. and your echo chamber praises your, you know strong support for right. minorities mm-hmm. you feel like a hero yeah well this and is like you get ten thousand a hundred thousand retweets on something like that like i myself know how i feel mm. even when like let's say a reddit post that i make that gets 30 likes yeah yeah. well yeah. imagine if i was getting hundred thousand i'd i'd think i was on top of the world people would think that i had influence right well it's it's this weird echo chamber that we've created and, and, and the social media addiction, you know, almost every single one of the, the wealthy people that I know or the successful people that I know don't go on social media. <laughs> well, as you can clearly tell, I don't know how to use Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So there so, we go. So you know, to the extent for, uh, that that makes any point one way or another. <laughs> and, and I'm not, I don't want to be like one of those anti-social media people. I use social media. More than I should, and I appreciate what it's done for me in terms of keeping me in touch with friends, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But I think my point is these people can feel they can be given huge amounts of meaningless affirmation that will become addictive to them to the point of of echo chamber insanity. Yeah, I I call it. And and I want to bring this back to. Well, I would call that exact feeling that's like the social version of eating candy. Yes. You get a rush right away, and it's unsustainable, and it actually makes you probably feel worse in the long run. But you want that rush again yeah, and again. Yeah, so the again. only way is to just keep eating candy until your teeth fall out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to extend the metaphor. Yeah. Reality, yeah. Right? Yeah, and I mean, this might be a good place to interject a heuristic I'm working on 
to to kind of be a social combat to extremism in any way is um and and propaganda and and meme culture is uh something i call temperate impatience right yeah. <laughs> which is like oh that's not a good argument please continue or like you know if someone gives you a slogan or i mean it's kind of it's the it's the way that Ideally, Mandrake could have handled Ripper if they actually maintained both of their rational actor status is um, Mandrake saying, well, like it's kind of what Mandrake says when he's like, well, we, we are trying to prevent nuclear war. <laughs> well, and <laughs> right? here's the thing. It's like the like it's a lack of imagination. So defund the police feels like a move towards justice, mm-hmm. but it's a lack of imagination of what actually makes well, it's up not law even, and order. It's not even pretending to understand the idea of, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, hidden consequences no but or or unintended consequences it's and a lack of belief maybe that those even exist well it's it's short-sighted yes. let's put it that yeah, way yeah. i guess this is like this temperate impatience idea is kind of it's it's hard for mandrake in the going back to our very first point about ripper it's so hard for mandrake to be able to do because he's lower down in the chain of command than ripper right yeah. so it's a lot harder to do against a superior and yet what did, one of the interesting things that's happening in our culture is that people are self-censoring it seems in uh, people who are as far as like the citizens citizenry goes equals yeah <laughs> right yeah. so well, you can't even do it really we are in a situation similar to i would argue the end of the republic rome of mob rule mm. right and and people utilize the mob to take out their enemies and and the mob has value as a tool to people and so they they let it be there but the problem is the mob will will eat its own sometimes Mm -hmm. the mob is not rational well as you know i just recently read tale of two cities yeah which is a great dickens novel on in his take on the french revolution and it's just kind of both crazy and obvious to see how that went off the rails right of a noble underpinning that just had no check on its ambitions yeah right so eventually everyone becomes an enemy of the patriots yes right or an enemy of the idea so like at the beginning in tale of two cities they're they're going after the monarchs and the like the most obvious you know marquees and aristocrats but by the end they're actually just going after someone who's a little bit richer yeah in a a shop (laughs) down the street because of ties to ties to ties to ties of someone who they don't like yeah Right, and it's I mean, a witch hunt. It's a it's a crucible esque witch. Yeah, hunt. and I mean, French Revolution is feels a little different than the difference is there's like no pretense of hating superiors exactly in the American context right now. It's just hating other citizens. Well, so like the, there is a lot of hatred a, for quote unquote privilege. Sure, but they they've kind of skipped the. But that doesn't have to be economic or class anymore. No, <laughs> that it's just, racial. It's 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 immutable characteristics yes. of the privilege givers yeah. now, as opposed to, you know, bequeathed ta- like estate inheritance kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's like subtle and maybe academic economic differences between that kind of fervor and the French Revolution, but I mean, it's still a useful. What do they say? Twain says history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Well, it's I, useful yeah. to pay attention to social trends. Well, I think the, in the, yeah, the interesting trend I think to pay attention to here is ideology has trumped humanity. Mm. And so the hatred that ideologues have for people on the other side, particularly in America, has left little room for common 
you know, common, there's no common values now. Mm. Like everything, the, the Supreme Court justice situation has become a political battle. Why, why are courts political at this point? Well, because... Well, they're like the last line of defense for like figuring out who gets the final say on something. Right. I mean, everything's political now. Right, and I mean that's a that's a symptom of a of a sick society. <laughs> now imagine if some of these people got their hands on a nuke. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> I guess exactly my my point is I think we're we're witnessing maybe in the film in the film what's happening right now. Well, like Jack Ripper being an ideologue. Yeah, I love these kind of definitions by philosophers down the way. Santiana's definition of a zealot is someone who doubles their efforts the exact moment they've lost sight of their aims right right and an ideologue is like someone who is committed to the end by any means right right so so like and that that i have to point out is the exact opposite of the scientific mindset yeah right yeah the ends are and this is imperfectly put into practice but the ideal exists nonetheless that the only way to do science and the scientific method properly is to have no vested interest in the outcome, and, yeah. and to, to focus to focus entirely, entirely on the means. On the means, yeah. And again, like in some sense, that is literally impossible. But we carve away at it at our best through having many different people who are educated in science in many different disciplines critiquing each other and incentivizing the disproving exactly of things. exactly it's actually one of the best things humans have ever come up with in my opinion in my in my I think a lot opinion. of people would agree with you <laughs> yeah on that. and if anything <laughs> of all the things jack ripper isn't it's a scientist no no <laughs> you know not at all and and then there's that i mean then there's the motif of the the politicians and the and the rulers always just getting to tell the scientists what to do. Yes, you know. Yes, and uh, I'd be interested to see a movie where the scientists get to make policy. They're not terribly good at it either because they forget the human element. I think sometimes, but yeah. So again, I get like all of these social processes. I I couldn't refer listeners more to Karl Popper in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, where he's like, the, actually, the, the best way for social reform is slow, cumbersome, and piecemeal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because well, a lot radical of shifts in social life don't almost always them. result in mass death. Yeah. Well, I'm like, um, one of the things I've heard is like, to really change something, you have to wait for people to die. Well, yeah, there's that. Right. There's that. Just like less people upset. So anyway, any other thoughts on Ripper or Mandrake or their arc? Not really. No, okay. So, uh, what did you think about Buck? Oh, Buck Turgidson. Man, like, like, honestly, I don't think I liked a single character in this film. Oh, not um, a single one, eh? Like, not even Mandrake? Like, I also found him annoying. Mm. I don't know why. I found everyone annoying. Is that because he was British? No, I like <laughs> British people. I have, I have a lot of British friends. I think it's like, they're all caricatures. Mm. And I guess what I like in my movies is like a depth of character and interesting. And none right. of these characters, I didn't feel like any of these people could be real. I know that sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. But like nobody's that lacks nuance. I mean, anyone who got to any of these positions would not lack nuance to that level. Hmm. I mean, and I get that it's a satire and it's like a kind of slapsticky and, you know, that's what people enjoyed even more in that time period too mm-hmm. in terms of film and right. movies. Uh, and and te- uh, television, but I don't enjoy it. Mm. Right? Um, Can you enjoy it if you know that this is what they're trying to do? Sort of, but like it's. I guess it's. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I don't know how to put it. 
like the caricature is the intention of the creator of this work of fiction, right? So like, at yeah, least, no, I, I understand. Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I guess. Okay, like I'll, I compare this to kind of what I would call modern humor, which would be Rick and Morty, mm. which I think is 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 is, is it's not a satire, right? Right. It's it's a reflection. Well, not merely a satire, right? I mean, it's it's slapsticky in its kind of gore and like and its technology and its and its world, but it's incredibly serious in its material. Mm. And maybe I mean, I, I guess you could make the argument that the material here is serious, but the dialogue isn't. Mm-hmm. Right, like when he's going on about, well, we just have to do this because, like, this is just the nature of things, right? Like, we just got to win this war. Now, is that how generals were back then? Is that how generals are now? I don't know. Maybe, mm. maybe it is. Right, right. But I, I, I just find it difficult to believe. I don't know. It, you know, you need to to enjoy fiction. You need suspension of disbelief. Mm. And I couldn't suspend my disbelief. Right. In in this particular context, it just seemed too ridiculous. Okay, so do you did, did that mean that you don't think there would have been people at whatever the equivalent of the war room is in the 1960s for the United States who would be saying things like this is okay, obviously when he says like when they come out in 100 years from their bunkers they could take over and we need to be prepared for that. Like that's an obvious like We need to think about this in a military context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I bet you there are people who at least put that perspective forward without irony. Yes. Uh, I just don't take those people seriously. Okay. And I don't think they've been taken seriously throughout mm -hmm. history. Well, it it does look like the president is... (laughs) He's flabbergasted. Once he gets all of the like exposition and information out of Buck, he is not really interested in talking to him anymore. (laughs) And yet Buck keeps injecting himself in with that perspective. Yeah, okay, fair enough. He's just a caricature of yeah. A, I just didn't a find. I I get. I maybe you could dig into like the military mindset and like how you need people who are willing to go that far. If you if people don't believe you're willing to go that far, this is kind of like what Doctor Strange Love kind of points out is the nature of the problem becomes difficult, right? Mm. Because it has to be like deterrence requires right people to believe that you're willing <laughs> to do something, but if you create a like a perfect deterrent mm. then that doesn't take into account human error and right. therefore but if you take into account too much human error you don't have a perfect deterrent and like that's the the humor <laughs> of this movie in my mind yeah but i didn't find that buck added much to it he was no. kind of like a pig-headed okay well here's something i liked uh, not about him but about his portrayal that i thought was worth thinking about is how Again, because I guess the statistical aspect of how we talk about nuclear death, right? It's like, well, is it is it going to be 10,000, 100,000, or a million, right? Those are, in real life, orders of magnitude. Yeah. And yet we don't really have an intuition about orders of magnitude, right? No, like we, well, ha- once we, we can get only, beyond a certain number. We only say them as numbers, right? They're just words in a, in a, in a non-trivial sense. And so, you know, General Buck Turgidson, or Turgidson, is totally without batting an eye he's willing to talk about potential deaths catastrophes collateral damage and yet he shies away from passing any judgment on jack ripper's mental state yeah <laughs> right like it's the i it's like a humorous category and tragic error. It's a category tragic error. disconnect because like well i know the guy and so i can't 
I don't want to pass judgment without like a clinical observation, right? It's like as opposed to like the obvious issues, absurdity here. of trying to start a nuclear war when you don't have the authority to. But see, and he has empathy for that way of thinking, sure. And that's the problem. He's like, right. oh yeah, I mean, that's really the problem with with military military thinking in general. I he think. has no concept of the, the the millions of people who are going to die here. No, but he does have a concept of well, we shouldn't badmouth this guy I know, <laughs> or the system that we've created. Right? <laughs> yeah, right? You can't, you can't judge so, this system. He he seems very hurt by the idea that mm, someone would you know cast asper- er, aspersions right. on the so, value of the system. So I consider created. it like a, a very it's a satirical take on that kind of myopic yeah. way of being in a military context, yes. right? Yes, and it's it. not only military. I guess like this is actually a. This is a, uh, um, a a moral philosophy phenomenon that Sam Harris has talked a lot about, where the more people you add to your aid, the less interested you are in aiding. Right. <laughs> like right. Uh, they've done they've done experiments of how people will give a certain amount of money if it's like one little boy, right, and then another and like a similar amount if it's a little girl. But as soon as you as their siblings and you put them together, people are less willing to help because, wow. because it's like, well, that's more <laughs> like, and then once you put it to like, Oh, there's thousands of people starving and it's just like fatigue basically takes over and like a kind of helplessness. You can only care a, a certain amount. Yeah. And then there's a certain psychology that's similar where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if we're already going to be killing a hundred thousand, let's just take this extra maneuver and sure it'll be a million, but right. we'll get all this extra stuff done you're yeah. just like uh, yeah <laughs> like there is weirdly there is a big difference between a hundred thousand and a million yeah <laughs> like nine hundred thousand yeah exactly like that <laughs> that's relevant yeah ethically i mean it's it's but again it's even hard for us to talk about this seriously because we don't even have an intuition about these kind of no, things so. the numbers get too big anyway it was kind of nice to see how i don't know what you take on this like the president and presumably the Russian president and a lot of the other people around were very interested in not having the bombs go off. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it didn't like, it wasn't a caricature in the just like bloodthirsty power hungry politician. No. Who wants to end I, the, the My favorite part of the movie was, was how funny they made the conversations between the president and the premier. Like, it's like, well, I am really am sorry about this. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was well, good, I don't eh? care if you're more sorry. Like, I, it's I'm a, I can be sorry too. Like, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, and, and but it's all filmed as a one-sided yes, conversation. I know. It's, it's really well done. Yeah. I, that's my favorite part of the movie. I think it was the, the was the those conversations. Humor, yeah. Those were hilarious in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is this an example then of politicians actually not really having power? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's also an example of of uh, unintended consequences, right? Like, neither of these politicians actually ever wanted to drop nukes on the other one, but they created systems in which that was more and more likely and then inevitable, I guess. Right, right. So the law of unintended consequences, mm-hmm. I guess. I guess it makes me feel a little bit like probably a lot of people who are elected in elected positions often probably like okay here's here's how i frame it to what extent are they figureheads versus people who can actually make these decisions like or, without getting undermined by people who are actually making the decisions i guess it depends on the leader mm. right right there's a lot of time they could just be figureheads but like you take someone it, it's i think it's the, the difference between taking an active and a passive role in something mm. right and i mean there's the moment where the general is like well you signed this order to the president 
And like, it's pretty obvious the president hadn't really thought through the consequences of the order he'd signed. Yeah, just another and thing coming so, across. Yeah, his he's desk. not taking active an active role in it. So I think that's what it really comes down to. You're a figurehead if you let other people use you. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, I thought he was funny, and it was great. Peter Sellers doing his American accent, but I, I guess I, I remembered him being more important to the movie than he actually is. Yeah, he seems kind of like he's just bumbling around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which perhaps another Britishism there. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> Take on the, <laughs> on the American Americans, leadership, yeah. like the uh, the caricatures of the pre- of the generals being, um, you know, warmongers, warmongers, basically. and and complete meatheads, and the president being a kind of mm, do gooder, happy go lucky. General Buck, like he's sleeping with his secretary, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. And she calls while he's in the war room, and he's like, "No, I, yeah, I love you, and this yeah, will be long term." Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> speaking of that, of the era, Buck's secretary is the only woman female in the movie in the entire movie. And yeah. the scene she's in, she's in a bikini. <laughs> so yeah. And at the end, they're all talking about how to repopulate the planet. They're going to need a ten to one ratio of women to men. Of women yeah. to men. So I think, again, it on the surface seems sexist sexist but i think it's not because they're actually satirizing that attitude yeah. not celebrating it yes. right and it it doesn't take that sophisticated of a viewer to notice no, that no, like no. the people who are promulgating the misogynistic attitudes are the dumbasses and the people yeah, we no, don't nobody like. respects these people. yeah exactly yeah. i did think it was interesting how there weren't any there's well i guess it's accurate in the sense that probably in the 60s there weren't any female cabinet or what do they call them, the states like the the secretaries, uh, yeah, yeah, secretary of right. state, secretary of defense, mm-hmm. generals, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it was all men in the war room. Yeah, it'd be very different now. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So that probably puts us into kind of the last major psychological thing to talk about, which is the doomsday device, or maybe the bombers. Well, oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. bombers too. Yeah, we'll talk about them when the president finds out about this doomsday device, and the doomsday device is a a system that the Russians have created so that if they are attacked, it's been it will taken automatically. automatically like fire all of the entire Russian nu- nuclear arsenal at the United States. And it's autom- it's automated. So it's actually not up to Dimitri, the president It's no. just going to happen anyway. And so this is where Dr. Strangelove comes in and he's in the wheelchair and he says, deterrence is the art of making your enemy too scared to attack. And so, you know, the doomsday device being, a deterrence without any human basically taking the human element out you have of it to as take a the human element out of it to make it a like a credible deterrent in a sense because and you're destroying the, the whole world the most credible deterrence yes right and so the president is curious um if the united states has been working on this i can't remember if they said anything like that. well they published a paper but they didn't have one exactly and then i mean this is a funny <laughs> moment right where buck's like we we need to be winning the dooms i wish we had one of those like <laughs> yeah. it's like oh boy like, <laughs> yeah 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 like well, okay. it's just more of what he's like. The obvious point that Strangelove makes is to the Russian ambassadors, doomsday devices only work if your enemy knows you have it. Yeah. And he's like, why don't we know? And, and he's, like, he's like, we were like, going to announce it. On Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, pomp and ceremony, actually dangerous. Yes. In this scenario, yeah. Not just yeah. annoying. So there is a kind of macabre logic to the doomsday yeah. device, hey? Oh, for sure. I think that's the point is it's like, this is how logic can lead you down the road to global annihilation well because what it does is it winnows 
without potential other consequences. Yeah. Right? There's only one. And and this is what I think is part of the operation of life that's both beautiful and confusing is that there are, are so many potential consequences to our actions, right? If I say this thing to this person, I actually don't know how they're going to respond. Yeah. Right? They might respond this way. They might respond that way. That's actually probably like the underlying psychology of the kind of people we come to be friends with or even fall in love with is of all of the plethora of potential ways of responding to us, they kind of consistently respond in this one way that I kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. Whereas with the doomsday device, all of that is eliminated in the psychology of things, right? Yes. It's just, there's only one consequence possible to this particular behavior. And that would make, if that was the case in all of life, everything would become automatic. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so I actually, I guess I'm realizing this now I'm a opponent of the single consequential, single consequence way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right? for sure. Uh, like, I actually think so much of life would become less appealing if I knew, well, obviously, if you say it out loud, if I knew how it would be received. Like even this podcast, even if I knew everyone would love this episode, it'd become less interesting to me to do. Right. Yeah. Because, well, you wouldn't (laughs) have to do anything. Yeah. Because it would be inevitable. mm -hmm. Um, If that was the only possible consequence. Yeah. But there is this possibility that you might all hate this episode and that kind but of if like, that was also known, yeah, if it that was would for be sure. uninteresting to me yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the it's the kind of uncertainty that makes it exciting and worth pursuing in a, from a creative standpoint, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it's actually how I. It's one of the maturities I had when it came to thinking about like learning a musical instrument. Yeah. Whereas like a lot of people in in your younger, less mature, less reflective, so I was like, I would love to just be good at guitar. Right. I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up, and just be Jack White talent at the guitar. That actually runs counter to how I view the world now, which is like, well, I, the, the the struggle and the earning of the ability is what gives you the meaning for it anyway. I actually think about this in terms of relationships too. Because mm-hmm. I mean, when you're younger, it's like, oh, I would just love to have a partner. right? I want someone to love me. I want to be in a relationship. Well, okay. But all of those things aren't actual things. Right. Right? You have to work on them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like to be to have a partner is to have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right? To to fall in love is a series of choices. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to have someone love you is a series of, you know, there's there's something that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And and you don't think about those things cuz you just want that thing. You want to have that thing. You don't I think like Sometimes I wonder if the human race would even produce if we told everyone like what it is to have a child. Like <laughs> I was having a conversation with someone uh, yesterday about this, and they're like, you know, I thought about having a little kid, and I thought about having a baby, mm. and I thought about having a toddler, but I never thought about having a teenager. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do people their own beasts? Yeah, like, like we don't think about these things mm. um, because we're we're uh, we're living in imagination land as opposed to. Re- like the real deal yeah and it's, yeah 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 fair and and it's the same with the guitar like you're describing but i mean i think everyone whether they ever wanted to play a, a well not everyone but most people have thought about and dreamed about being in a relationship mm-hmm. or are in a relationship mm-hmm. and the distinction between those two things is quite stark yeah and i guess the distinction worth making here then is that in the like the tapestry of life all of our choices and decisions and the way we go about it is multifunctional so there is like different 
outcomes possible, whereas like a nuclear device is single single function. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So the logic of doomsday device makes sense for a single function entity. Yeah. I would, I would say. And and the disconnect there is that the generals are playing with nukes as if they're multifunction. Yes. Right? Uh, if we do this with this nuke, maybe they'll do this. Maybe they'll do that. But we don't know. But if we do this slightly different thing with this nuke, if we just turn the knobs. So they're playing with a category thing as if it's a spectrum. Yeah. Right? And that's why the doomsday device makes so, so much sense. Whereas Well, it's also in- just, you know, highlights the absurdity of world-destroying mm-hmm. weapons. Right. right. Whereas in everyday life, the doomsday device, the equivalent of that would be like an ultimatum yes. with another person. Yeah. And those almost never work unless you somehow manage to be in a social single function scenario, yeah. which would be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe a boss, the situation. commission of a crime. Or like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I will fire you if you don't do what I say. Right. Right. Yeah. That would be a... in a total dominance. Yeah. And then you have to weigh like what the consequences of that are for yourself. Yeah. If the metaphor of a nuke going off in your life is appropriate there yeah. or not. But again, I think a lot of times metaphors get lazy as we mm. get further away from the source. Yeah. <laughs> right. I so, agree. Anyway, I just thought, um, like, the logic of deterrence is sound. It's a human error why the Americans don't know about this doomsday But that's device. the interesting thing is the difference between something being logical and something being true. Yeah. And did. Did Jack Ripper know about the Doomsday Device? I don't no, think he, he didn't. did, right? He didn't. Well, that's, I, we so, said that at the beginning. It was the yeah, yeah. imagination. So again, it's just chance. Yeah. So like the fate of the planet, again, falling a roll of the dice. Yeah. Which is interesting. And then the only other kind of interesting thing about Strangelove is his uh, not-so-subtle still loyalty Nazi. to the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> he calls the president my Fuhrer. Yeah, it's very weird. But I didn't understand that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get it in the context of the movie either. Other no. than, um, other than maybe a satire on the Americans' willingness to overlook the right. Nazi sympathies potentially of the scientists that they brought on right. after the war to help them out, and what True. that might mean or feel like, you know, because of '64. So this movie came out only 19 years after the end of World War II. Yeah. So basically, its original audience would have all have been people who lived through it in one form or another, right? And the amount of Holocaust survivors who would have seen this movie, uh, the percentage of people who survived the concentration camps, a huge, and then came to America at any point, or, or probably would have seen this movie because yeah. it was really popular and famous. And so, again, like the satire being our side taking on these people who still have these sympathies. Yes. How do we feel about that? And Which would have been we interesting. Know how they went about things. sociological. Yeah, true point but yeah i didn't strange love i thought sellers again acting was great but not that like i don't i don't know why they named this movie after him do you like, no of all the characters that they should have named it after it should have been like ripper ripper yeah yeah like crazy ripper or something <laughs> like that right so i thought there was a funny disclaimer at the start right like this is a work of fiction right because <laughs> yeah. they would have had to have been probably so litigious in their yeah. in their points because this is still a really live issue for all yeah, of them. Yeah, back then it would have been really live, yeah. Uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about the bombers in the plane. Yes, yes. Well, you mentioned earlier that you didn't like anybody in this movie and the only person I liked was the one guy who 
kept saying to the pilot, well, these are the facts and figures, sir. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. we have this much fuel. We have this much going right. on. And the and the pilot's like, well, why don't we have better? Yeah. And he's like, all I can say, sir, is <laughs> reality. Like, this is reality, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I liked him, but everybody else, you're right, was just kind of... Well, and, like, it's just interesting that they... that the the mentality of the kind of patriotism. But these people also didn't know about the doomsday advice. Mm-hmm. Device. So, like, again, a lack of imagination results in the end of the world right because they're they feel like they're being patriotic they don't know that what they're doing is actually going to kill everyone they, they've ever loved or known mm-hmm. they think that they're doing a service to their country right you know ours is not the reason why ours is about to do and die but they do get the code to call them back right no no they don't, they don't. because they're under the radar yes right well not That's only right. that they've been damaged because yeah. the americans have given their flight like their own government they're so loyal to to enacting these orders mm-hmm. but they're the order givers are not nearly as loyal to them <laughs> yeah right? they're like yeah. blow them up we yeah, don't yeah. want them to drop of that course, bomb right yeah because they do the recall code so 30 of the planes come back and four of them are claimed destroyed but only three of them are destroyed and one of them is not destroyed still flying to a target and, and can't they, be it's like not in incommunicado not a, well basically their 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 communication devices are broken but so even the thing that would receive yeah, a yeah. code, okay. Yeah. They, they mentioned that in the movie. I might be just missed that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it is interesting how they're con- they're so committed to this, like yeah. in the cowboy pilot, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was... iconic scene of him cheering as he's sitting on the bomb as yeah, it's going down. On the yeah. yeah, that was pretty crazy. Hey, again, um, obviously someone who's maybe struggling with their mental health or mm-hmm. who knows, right? Yeah. I and I thought it was actually like probably. I wonder if the technology of now would make this basically impossible yes. to be incommunicado with your yeah, I would think so. I was thinking right? that too. I was also like three letters and they're like, there's over 700,000 or something. I forget. Uh, 17,000. Seven, and I'm like, oh, so it would take like, my my cell phone would take like four minutes. To right. Like yeah. 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 Calculation. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how the technology changes the just framing of everything. Yes. Of what they're able to do. It's like, oh, a three letter code. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. not going to be hard to break. Right. Right, right, right. You mentioned another thing I wanted to bring up. You mentioned earlier the uh, peace is our profession. Yeah. Is it just me or is propaganda getting dumber or has it always been this dumb as it feels like now? Well, I think it was actually dumber before because there was like, I think the internet has has provided critique Mm. of propaganda. Right. And I think propaganda has to be smarter now. Memes are more subtle. Like before it would be like, just straight up, you know, lies. Right. That people would believe. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but think of like, uh, you know, whatever, kick down the door of controversial opinions. Antifa. Right. <laughs> being, well, they're anti-fascists. Right. So by definition, they can't be fascists. Even though they're acting like fascists. Well. Like literally like like the brown coats. Well, there's a part, like, I don't know. Like I just, there's a part of me that can't believe anybody could be that dumb. <laughs> right and... but it, but it's a signal i guess like the okay so the assumption would be that the definition like the word and the definition of that word trumps its manifest reality yeah right that's propaganda essentially right, right yeah. there i was listening to sam harris's recent podcast with john mcwhorter which was incredible and he was talking about some famous novelist who tweeted there called antifa because it's anti-fascist apparently without any irony <laughs> 
Now, maybe there was irony in there, and I don't want to like cast aspersions on that particular right, person right, whose right. name I can't even remember. <laughs> so there's that. Right. But it's like, okay, people who are anarchists, for sure, yeah, and who will beat up other citizens and terrorize businesses. Like, fascism isn't the same thing as the Nazis. No. Right? It's a rudimentary philosophical distinction. The Nazis were fascists, but you don't have to be a Nazi, Nazi to, to be, be a fascist. So if you were going to think about it, if you want to, in the, in the in the age of good branding, the best yeah. thing to call yourself if you are a fascist is an, an anti-fascist, right? Like, it's all about behavior yeah. and what you're doing and the principles behind what you're doing that seem to me obvious to anyone who can think for one second. Yeah. But so I guess I'm asking people think for to one think second. for more than one second about yeah. just labels, right? Labels in general. Peace is our profession at the at, in the middle of them a shooting their base. guns to yeah. each other. What you could say, and, and okay, so I'll try to steal man the movie a bit here. Instead of peace is our profession, you can still respect the thinking people in your society without giving away the raison d'etre of your institution's existence in the first place if you wrote something like we are doing our best to make peace between peoples on the planet and we don't always succeed and often to do that we have to engage in violence and we don't want to but we will yeah (laughs) right yeah and then maybe in subtext ideally it's all for creating peace between people but we know human nature is unstable and that's the need for a military in the first place right right yeah. Now that doesn't fit well long, on a sign, yeah. right? But it does respect the thinking people in your society. True. And again, uh, uh, well, what I don't know. Try what's the steel man of an antifa like? Uh, we are so convinced of a imminent white supremacy takeover of the United States that we're willing to engage in fascist behavior, behavior. to to stop it. To stop it. <laughs> it's like okay. which I think is is really is what they think. Well, okay, but I mean. Say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so you at least respect the thinking people yes, in your exactly. society. Instead of calling it anti-fascist. But I mean, that's not good branding either, right? No. So it's like, oh, God, I can't, I just. As I you know. they never actually say the full phrase. Well, it's more chic <laughs> the way well, it is No, now. I think they say it the way that they do because it obfuscates what they're saying. Well, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think people are just lazy right fair, fair. <laughs> right takes longer to say anti-fascist yeah um yeah, fair enough so anyway as you know one of my intellectual pet peeves slash bugaboos is propaganda yeah it just is i hate it <laughs> I, I i bugaboo you you've you've heard me rail mm-hmm. on television commercials it's true <laughs> like it's true. of all of the things socially that just get under my skin it's commercials which are lowest common denominator, Propaganda. assuming assuming nobody in your entire society has a brain. Yeah, and yeah. I just don't have time for that. You don't. You don't want <laughs> so, that. Yeah. So that was the um, element of this movie. I thought was funny. Yeah, like peace is our profession. Uh, yeah, really, is it the okay. army's profession? <laughs> is, is peace. peace. <laughs> That's yeah. It's just paying no attention to the sophistication, complexities, and incentives that are in people's lives in the day to day. Yeah. Faction, right? Yeah. I guess that's basically everything other than maybe the last thing. There were a lot of scenes of the airplanes, like exterior shots. And I was like, you know what? This this isn't the worst CGI you could get for 1964. Right. right. But I don't know. Like, 
I'm generally of the opinion that old movies aren't good. Right. Right. <laughs> right? I don't know. Like, I think you're right. The, the thing that maybe this movie struggles from the most is just when it was made. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In terms of like, well, okay, what do you think a modern version of Dr. Strangelove would look like? I just think there'd be a lot more sophistication to the... You're right. The plot would be more sophisticated. Even if it was humorous, the, the humor would be... The Buck-type character wouldn't be as on the nose. Yeah. Like, the general that was in the war room would be probably less forthcoming. Maybe a bit more bureaucratic. Yeah. Right? That kind of thing. Maybe the banality of evil. So do you think this movie's just any of it... What did you think about the era? And, like, the fact that it's an old movie. Do you think that affected how you felt about it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big old movie fan i, mm-hmm. I guess um I, I don't think that that's the golden era of television or even a very good era of t- or, or of cinema like right. i think we just keep getting better and better at that i mean that's david foster wallace's critique of modern societies that we've become so good at entertainment <laughs> yeah um, true <laughs> so yeah i just don't think we're, it was good entertainment mm. fundamentally yeah. no although you did laugh no no like, you, there you were some, some funny parts but like I laugh reading comic strips too, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, some comic strips are. Our art, no, I, yeah. yeah <laughs> but I know okay, what you mean. Fair. I, I definitely like, and this happens because, as you know, I do this other podcast about horror movies with a couple friends, and we have watched a bunch of movies from the 70s because that's kind of a lot of like the beginning of horror classic tropes and movies came from the 70s. And, I just can't help but watch horror movies specifically from the 70s and think, even if there's interesting ideas in these movies, these are not good movies. No. They're, <laughs> right. like, the acting is cheesy, the story is cheesy, and the dialogue is absurd, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, people don't talk to each other like this. And I don't think, think they, they did in did. the 70s <laughs> either. Yeah. But yeah. I think that movies portrayed it that way. And, like, it's a little bit, it was even a little bit like that when we were kids. Like, I think there were movies from the early 90s that were so silly Mm -hmm. like not how people talk to each other for like some kind of like almost contemporary nostalgia right right (laughs) if you think about it like even a movie like home alone you know the physical absurdities of it aside it's purely a romp right like it's not more like to be airbud yeah airbud right or uh and i love this movie but like little giants or little right. rascals right, <laughs> right? yeah like, yeah yeah they're fun they're so fun i'm not disparaging these movies but they're not like they're not sophisticated takes on what it might be like to be in that situation no. at all whereas you then you go like stranger things like, exactly which is the modern yeah. version of how kids might interact so you don't lose the charm of childhood even the f- even the hilarity at some point, mm-hmm. but you, you're sophisticated. About well, but it. like, or even the first chapter of it, like the modern version yeah. in, in it, especially not as much in stranger things. Cause the ratings are different. I only associate the two cause Finn Wolfhard is in both. Right. They are filthy mouthed in it. Right. Like the 12 year olds are talking about the things that 12 year olds actually talk about in real life. Not the kind of like Hollywood version of well, what 12 some, year olds, some 12 year olds. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I would say higher than average as portrayed right. in Hollywood, certainly fair. before, you know, fair, the fair. 2000s. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess we haven't really done many older films, have we? No. I don't think. Like, we other haven't. than, this like, is the oldest film Robin Hood. For sure. Oh, right, Disney. But Disney, like, that's, like, we're going into Disney movies a little bit more eyes open of, like, yeah, older <laughs> time type movies. 
But yeah, like a lot of movies we and do. And I actually see the Disney movies as more timeless. Yeah, agreed. Because they're based on these older stories anyway. Yes. Yeah. So I was just interested by the fact that I think I enjoyed this movie less this time around. And I think it was because of the era feel to it. Yeah. Not even the fact that what are the people in 1964 caring about, but how they present what they're caring about yeah. through their actors. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a little too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if a move, like I'd love to eventually do a Hitchcock film, but I know it will be even more like that. Yes. Right? Like I, my vote for Hitchcock would be to do Rear Window first, which is an incredible movie with very deep psychology going on. And yet it is not a sophisticated dialogue no no you know just the over the top way jimmy stewart is a lot of the time is so silly right you know and then and then they actually there's this hitchcock film rope from like the 40s i think i think it's like the late 40s it's like one of the first in color movies hitchcock did and it's like these two characters basically interpreting the nietzschean idea of the superman so they kill someone and then they're like the dead bodies in the room the whole movie and it's just like no one I can't believe even in the 1940s people talked like this. Right. Like, this is so stupid. So, right, right. you know, I'm here I am bringing the aesthetic fangs out. Apologies <laughs> to anyone who liked Rope or Rear Window. Right, right. I actually like Rear Window. I think Rear Window is a good movie, but it's not a sophisticated dialogue. No. Or a sophisticated take on the characters in a situation like this. Yes. yes. Which is, you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, I thought the humor, the satire is important in a yeah. movie like this, and the humor was good enough to make it. It's worth a watch. It's watchable, yeah. I wouldn't say go out and watch this film. But, but maybe we should, in the future, do a, a different Kubrick film. Yeah. Again, I'm sure we'll have to do Clockwork Orange at some point. There are better Kubrick films. Yeah, maybe agreed. Maybe a good way of putting it. Agreed. Well, again, if you really... If you... <laughs> If you get, I was going to say, if you really like really true fiction, <laughs> that's uh, too much really. Yeah, yeah. If you if you genuinely enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, again, we really enjoy making this podcast, even the movies that aren't our favorites. So if you get any value out of this, we would love if you could subscribe on any of the major podcast applications, do a rating or review. Uh, it helps the show grow. And send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. If you have any critiques, praises, criticisms, questions curiosities or you just even want to like say anything to us we want to eventually build a community around if you really show. hate our voices and uh want <laughs> us to change how we do that we won't oh yeah yeah no if but... you if you if it's like a specific ad hominem personal critique make we'll put that priority mail we'll get yeah. it first yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> anyway thank you for listening this has been an episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker may the force be with you may the force be with you mm-hmm.